Hey there, Ultra Cuties, and welcome back to Ultra Cuties, your home for everything Ultra Q, except it, it's not. You should probably go to like official Subaraya sources, not, not us. But hey, <laughs> we are the next best thing, and by that I mean we're the hundredth next best thing. I am your hostess, Madeline Blondo, and I am joined by... Hi, I'm a giant slug from a distant planet, Preston McFarlane. Okay, so we've been friends for a really long time, Preston, but I don't think you've ever told me about this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, yeah, I I don't know what to say. I was born from a gold ball that Wait. when heat touches it, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh no, oh no. This sounds, are you sure you're not mixing up your life story with the plot of, of one of these? No, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, like this makes sense. This makes a lot of sense. You, you're always out, you're always outside slugging around, doing what slugs do. What do slugs do? Do they just like go? What do, what do slugs do, Preston? <laughs> they, they, they leave trails of mucus. They leave, do you leave trails of mucus everywhere you go? I like to think I do. Hmm. Delicious. Preston. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's been a few weeks how you been i'm doing a-okay i um uh, i am uh just i'm ready to talk about some ag superaya goodness oh yeah i'm i'm always ready to talk about some ag superaya goodness um before we get into the main thing i actually to sort of parallel the thing that you did a few weeks ago i got to see some Godzilla movies on the big screen for the first time. Um, and, I, and that's not to say this is my first time seeing Godzilla on the big screen, but these movies I've never seen. So um, at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, uh, they they showed uh, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, Mothra versus Godzilla, Invasion of Astro Monster, and Godzilla versus Ghidorah. And I have to say, Preston, all four of these are tremendous bangers. Like, they are all. Like, I... These might be some of the four, like, best, the most, like, foremost Godzilla films for me now. And I don't know if I would have said that about these going in, but uh, I, I'm i kind of in love with each of them. Uh, Malfa versus Godzilla, particularly, I I did not remember enjoying as much as I did this time. What what do you think of that one? I know you like all of them, but are you are you a Malfa versus Godzilla person? Oh, yeah. Mothra vs. Godzilla is so wonderful because it's kind of in that sweet spot of the golden era of Toho. You know, you've got Eiji Tsuburaya probably at his prime uh, effects-wise. Um, you have a all-star Toho cast. You've got Ishiro Honda still having Godzilla be the bad guy. You know, he, he, Godzilla hasn't quite made the face yet that Ishiro Honda hated. So it's kind of everybody's at their A game in uh, Mothra versus Godzilla. Yeah, absolutely. It you know because Mothra had been introduced a few years prior, or I, was it like a year or two prior? I forget, but it was a year or two prior. Let's just say a few years. Couple, so. yeah, a couple years. Nineteen sixty one was when uh, Mothra first appeared in in, in Mothra, but um, yeah, no, like a couple years after the fact. Yeah, and so you had this, like, what was essentially Mothra being presented as, like, a, a the, the hero figure. Mothra, I think, even in Mothra's own film, is, like, a, a more, like, cuddly, less terrifying presence, even though it does present a threat. And so in this, you have Mothra taking on the titular, like, this is the good guy versus the bad guy, right? And so you're right. It, it casts Godzilla in this more implicitly villainous light. Godzilla trying to take this egg and, and destroy it and claw at it. It is, 
it is not the Godzilla that we think of when we think of like Godzilla as a good mom uh, protecting Manila and Godzilla like in um, All Monsters Attack, I believe, right? The, the, the clip show one where we see even more of that, right? It's, it's, it's still Godzilla as the villain. But one thing I wanted to focus on uh, before we get into the main topic, um, which, by the way, all the movies I saw during this, I think will I will bring up during these two episodes we discussed because they're actually very relevant. But this one isn't, and I want to talk about it. Preston, I think Godzilla versus Hedera might be like my in my top three Godzilla movies, and I don't know oh, how. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, oh I, yeah. I would agree. Uh, it's especially the Showa era. Hedera is leaps and bounds. Like, I think it's one of the few Godzilla movies that stands neck and neck with the original 54 film. I think they're both have a lot to say. Oh, it's it's the ultimate environmentalist film, in my opinion. I, I love Godzilla vs. Cedera. Yeah, no, right back at right back at you. Like, I really love this film specifically because it takes because Godzilla has this accepted nuclear analog threat and was from the beginning. And on top of that was this accepted threat that by the end of the 60s, people all over the world at this point were starting to understand what Godzilla was an analog for. And so it feels like a film that is taking the knowledge of what Godzilla is an analog for and pushing it further. And imagine this creature who was birthed from this kind of nuclear detritus looking at the rest of the ocean and being like bereaved that we are destroying it after we already destroyed it with nuclear testing, right? And so... Unlike Mothra versus Godzilla, this really implicitly like casts Godzilla in a very like heroic heroine light, right? Because you have this little kid who is placing all of their hopes on Godzilla coming out of the water and stopping pollution, right? Which, if you think about like what the state of like, let's just say I'm sure there are probably a lot of like Japanese children at the time who saw pollution and was like, dang, what if what if this big thing that I know from TV or a movie or anything could stop this, right? And I'm sure that in the era of, you know, Sofubi selling, like, flying off the shelves and Tokusatsu, I think, still kind of doing well, even though the Japanese films were declining at the time, like, it's very believable to see this kid being a real kid. And, and on top of that, like... It's just very interesting with all of the outdoor photography, the the final fight like atop Mount Fuji and how it's just like very different from a normal like set-based Godzilla fight. I I could go into it. This is not a Godzilla podcast. Maybe we'll do one of those one day. Who's to say? But um I really love that one. And the animated stuff. Amazing. Awesome. Oh yeah. I uh it's the most visually interesting Godzilla of the 70s and uh, that's a decade I love in Godzilla even though it's it's kind of what what's considered the 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 lesser half of the Showa era um I the Hedora film is is phenomenal I always really appreciated how it it manages to feel because it is it feels like a director's first shot at a film and just pulling every stop he can absolutely oh yeah it it has that kind of frenetic kinetic energy going on for it right this sort of like we are going to throw everything but the kitchen sink at this film because this is my shot and i'm not gonna waste it right yeah it's a shame that uh tomiyuki tanaka hated it so much (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's really funny to think about that because like 
um, you know, there is a direction I think that Godzilla films could have gone after this and it didn't go in those directions. And I would argue that none of the other Godzilla films approach the subject matter the way that this did. I don't think one did after it and I don't think one did before it. I think in a series where... And I don't want to upset any fans, uh, but no, I say this with love because Godzilla is maybe my favorite film franchise, you know. Um, there are some Godzilla movies where I would go like, oh, yeah, this one's kind of like this other one, right? This one from the 60s is kind of like this one from the 80s. Or this one is this one that came out back to back with this one kind of feels like a cash in, which would be raids again. Um, but like all, there are some movies in the inch series, even though they're good, I would say this one's kind of like this one sometimes, depending on the entry we're talking about. I don't think there's another, there's a, not a single other film in Godzilla that is like Hedera, and I, I think that's why it really stuck out to me. So yeah, um, four really good Godzilla films in theaters. I, And you know, Hollywood theater did a good job. The only thing I will say is, um, Preston, remember when we discussed uh, crowds and crowds clapping and cloud, crowds cheering for Godzilla? Okay, well, I got to tell you, um, there's some good stuff of that, you know, little kids being excited for it, like real genuine tokusatsu appreciators shouting, but um if you're at the Hollywood, if you're the Hollywood theater, um, and you were in the audience and you saw the miniatures and you saw, especially in my one of my favorites of the bunch, Invasion of Astro Monster, you saw the uh, the miniatures of the spacemen, you know, coming down from the the ship, and they were clearly like little GI Joes. If you saw those and you thought it was funny and you laughed and you were in that audience, fuck you. That's all, uh, Preston. Let's get <laughs> like seriously. Like if you go to these movies. And the laughter that you get from it is looking at old effects and going effect bad, uh, new effect good. Um, don't come see these in theaters. Like, legitimately, save the seat for someone who cares. That's all. <laughs> Preston, we're here to not shit talk how people appreciate tokusatsu, though. We're here to actually appreciate tokusatsu. So I think that's what we should get into. Ah, so we should start with a gift, right? A gift from space, maybe? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It feels like a gift. This episode is a gift. I mean, both of these episodes are gifts, but uh, this one is quite literally a, a gift from space. Um, so, Preston, why don't you tell us a little bit about episode three of Ultra Q, The Gift from Space. So it starts with Jun and uh, Yuriko on a helicopter. They notice a satellite falling from space, which has... Um, a mysterious gift from space, if you will, of two golden mm. balls and photographs <laughs> that are <laughs> and and photographs of uh, a mysterious surface that they the scientists can't really tell what they are. Um, the golden balls, he he ho ho, are stolen. <laughs> By a bank robber. <laughs> I, I turned into Jack Frost. Um, <laughs> uh, or stolen from a bank robber who then exposes them to heat and they turn into a giant slug monster called Namagon. Uh, the, our heroes have to kind of figure out a way to outsmart Namagon. Uh, throwing him uh, into seawater where the salt eats him alive. And uh, we're left on a kind of cliffhanger ending as another Namagon is hatched, coming towards our heroes. And 
uh, to be continued uh, ending. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a that's a pretty succinct summary. Um, so, just right off the bat, can we say? Uh, oh yeah, bummer like ending, right? Real, real bummer dour of an ending. for for <laughs> you know a series that hasn't had a dour ending in the last two episodes. Um, oh my gosh, defeat Gomez and Goro and Goro. Very defined ending. Well, Goro and Goro kind of has a down ending, but like you know, there's a solution to the problem. Um, there isn't really a solution to get from space. It kind of leaves you with an open-ended, you know, how will we solve this? You know, the the threat arrives. What will we do when, you know, our time comes and we have to face the unknown Um, is, is kind of the question we're left with. No, totally. Absolutely. And I think that it's one something I want to mention actually ties into one of the films I saw this weekend or not this weekend. It was a few weeks ago now. It's it's been a few weeks, Preston. Um, so the main thrust of Invasion of Astro Monster, um, if anyone is not familiar with that movie, um, which if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. So I don't know why I said that, but um, is essentially, you know, the humans travel to space they meet the Exilians. The Exilians say, we can cure cancer if you just give us monsters. We give them monsters. They're like, we're going to cure the cancer, except no, because we're going to use the monsters you gave us to take over the Earth. And the the thrust of the movie is, it is very much taken from one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes, To Serve Man, um, which is, don't make deals with aliens that are promising to fix all of your problems because rushing to space to solve everything is not the answer because people are very concerned about the space race, right? And the, the consequences of that, especially like Japanese writers who saw the violent consequences of technological evolution with the nuke, right? With the H-bomb, you have an entire set of creatives who are like, hey, this rush to do this technological space age thing is um, is very dangerous. And so why I wanted to bring that up is not only is it a very similar thrust, um, Astro Monster came out December 19th, 1965. And the air date for the gift from space was, as far as I can tell here, January 16th, 1966. So these came out within around a month of each other. Um, actually like less than a month of each other. And if you think about the fact that these are both tokusatsu things, both kind of, you know, built by folks who built Godzilla, one of them literally being a Godzilla film, I find it very interesting that these are essentially saying the same thing. However, to go back to the Ultra Q, I think that the ending of this is far more dour and far more bleak. And I think it is far more... Um, critical than invasion of the astro monster even up being right oh for sure invasion of astro monster ends on this kind of hopeful note at the end we defeat the zillions we defeat king Ghidra. you know uh godzilla and rodan go back to normal you know everybody's everybody's kind of clapping and cheering but at the end of this one there is this threat coming closer and closer to our heroes and you know by the next episode we know whatever happened they survive because we see our heroes again but um it's it leaves you in that kind of like the best i think the best twilight zones did this this kind of ambiguity endings that um leave the 
watcher to think about what the message is. And uh, I, I think that's what makes this one really special, is especially the ending. Um, and also, like, how we've gone from... This is the third episode, and we went from a Godzilla analog, uh, a King Kong analog, a Rodan analog, and now we have this completely new monster Namagon that's just so fresh. There's no recycling of suits. Um that there's something really cool about that. Like, it's like, you know, you go your third episode and you're like, oh, oh, this isn't going to be just, you know, A.G. Subraya playing the hits. Um, This is going to be like, oh, excuse me. Uh, This is going to be, there's going to be fresh stuff here. There's going to be some new monsters, some new ideas. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's the kind of... um... Some people don't like Anguirus because they think Anguirus is like a filler monster and that he's bogus. Those people are cowards. Um, I look, am so I, hurt to hear that. Yeah, i've i i heard i've heard some uh, i've heard some Anguirus hate lately. Maybe from a maybe from a certain maybe from some certain hosts of certain events. But we're not going to go there because the event was lovely. Um, but um, <laughs> Anguirus by some people is kind of thought of as this monster that was just kind of thrown in there for Godzilla to bang on, and that's kind of it. But because it's one of my favorite designs, I see kind of an Anguirus-ish quality to Namagon because it is that kind of like weird creature. It is a weird, small, like more horizontal than vertical creature. And if you think about um, King Kong and you think about Godzilla, then you think about Gomez and you think about Goro, those are vertical creatures, right? So we have a horizontal Mm. creature here. We have this creeping going along the ground and what sticks to the ground closer than a slug, right? Oh, yeah. Totally. And on Namagon, I love the effect and I love how at certain shots, it's hard to tell whether it's a practical suit or a puppet. Um, There's a lot. I I, I wouldn't be surprised if they used both. Um, There's a lot of really good um, shots kind of hiding the, the, how it, what, what kind of form of, 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 of effect they're using. And I I appreciate that greatly. Um, I'm sorry. I'm still shook by the people hate Anguirus thing. That just bothers it's, me. He's my spiky dog. Yeah, he's my spiky puppy. I love him. Anguirus is Anguirus is delightful. He's like I don't know. You step you step on him and it hurts. Like that's a good power. That's useful. I like that. You can't step on him. <laughs> you can't even pick him up. He hurts you. He's like a cactus. He's a little cactus puppy. Like what? What is there to hate? What is there to look down on? Except for him, because he's small. <laughs> but um, no, no, yeah. With Namagon specifically, what I really like, um, and I'm a I'm a slut for a good composite shot, um, and this episode has lots of them because how do oh, you? Oh, fantastic! Yeah, like how do you reconcile with a slug going along something? You composite it with something else covering the slug parts of it. How do you do the stuff happening at night? Or you you have all this dark cinematography going on, and then you just have like the slug head peeking in over a window, right? And you have all these things that like create the sense of scale of these giant bugs without ever feeling like you're I don't know. The composite shots and the puppetry never feel hokey. They never feel forced. You never feel the budget. And that episode three episodes end, Preston. It's something that we keep hammering home. This is truly like 
some of the most impressive tokusatsu that was being made at the time, like on par with the stuff in 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 theaters. And obviously, with episode one and two, you had the theater quality suits. But here, they are proving that they could do that without those suits. They were proving they could come up with something as oblique and interesting as a big slug and big snail slug thing and make it work. And I think that it's like a testament to the the crew that they are able to pull this off because. I don't know. You might disagree with me, Preston, and some other listeners might disagree, but I think if you were to task in a, an American effects studio in the early 60s to make a thing about a giant slug that was a short-form cautionary tale in 20 minutes, I don't think they could do it. <laughs> I think it would be bad. Oh, no. I, I, don't, <laughs> I can't think of that being done well. I think, uh, unfortunately, it would, a lot of filmmakers in the U.S. at the time, it would be beneath them. Oh, absolutely. And like you even see that reflected in a lot of the mentality of the actors who would work on those like Russ Tamblin very famously like hated being in tokusatsu movies and thought they were like very cheap um, and very, very chintzy. Right. Um, and what I what I would like to point out, though, is that this episode and the analog in Twilight Zone for it um, to serve man. To Serve Man, one of my favorite episodes of television, very limited effects, very limited makeup, and Twilight Zone doesn't really have great effects, and Twilight Zone was really kind of made around the same era. I mean, it was a few years before, granted, but like the way that Twilight Zone ultimately usually accomplished its thrills was trick cinematography, which was always really clever, um, a really good script, really good acting, right? These very, very compact things that like kind of mask the low budget of it all. But here, because of the state of the Japanese film industry at the time, and because these were film crews really coming in and working on this, um, you had this quality of of cinematic scope that even though this was telling essentially a, a similar cautionary tale to something like To Serve Man, it is an infinitely bigger feeling. And I, I hate to use the term epic, so I won't. It feels like an opus. It feels like a miniature opus about, hey, don't rush to space because we don't know what we'll find there, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, so, definitely. I. So Preston, th- oh, you go. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I, 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 that was all I got. <laughs> No, fair, fair. So this episode was directed by Subaraya himself, um, and it was also written by Tetsuo Kinjo. So why don't you talk a little bit, talk a little bit about Tetsuo Kinjo to me, Preston? You, you did a little bit of research before you got into the episode. Yeah, Tetsuo Kinjo is considered kind of one of the fathers of the Ultra series. Um, was primarily a television writer on Tokyo broadcasting station shows. Uh, his breakout was Ultra Q and. And would uh, Kinjo would even inspire mm-hmm. the character, the monster King Joe uh, from Ultra Seven? Uh, it's he <laughs> was a sci-fi writer, and a lot of his writing is prolific to the series and to Tokusatsu as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. He he's his influence really weighed heavy on the rest of the series. And like, I think that he like the early work that he did was like pretty formative for where it would go. Um, I think it's interesting, Preston. And this is something <laughs> this is a fun fact, y'all. Um, we actually recorded this episode a few weeks back. But um, unfortunately, a certain person whose name might be Madeline Blondo um, did not properly export her <laughs> audio. So I want to bring up the fact that Tetsuo Kinjo um, he witnessed the horrors of the imperial Japanese government um, committed on the people of Okinawa, um, which is something that's not very t- like often touched on, I think, in global geopolitical discussions. But it's very important to remember that like, for all of the 
preoccupation we have on um, Imperial Japan, like going to Korea, going to China, there is not a lot of discussion, I feel, of what was done to Okinawa. And it, it's very horrifying. And I, I encourage everyone to go go check that out because there is mass suicide, mass murder, all, all sorts of things that a, a young child should not be exposed to that Kinjo was exposed to because of his upbringing. And so that pain comes through and it comes through here and in the next episode, which um, he worked on as well, because you see that distrust, you see that fear, you see the anger at the rush towards accepting a, a, a solution to everything only for the solution to, to fuck everything over. And so I think of, you know, if you don't think of Ultra Q as everything is kind of like reset to the, the world neutral world state at the end of every episode, right? And you do think of each episode as sort of a self-contained thing, even though there's evidence for it not being that. Um, mm-hmm. That pain comes through in this episode very, very clearly because of just how bleak that ending is. And so I would encourage anybody to kind of look at his upbringing and look at that part of history because I think it sort of makes a lot of the stuff that he was preoccupied um, on as a writer make a lot of sense. I don't know if you would agree with that, but that's kind of my read on him. Oh, no, I definitely would. I think um, that reflects in a lot of his, his past work. Um, especially if you look at what, what episodes he specifically wrote, um, Kenjo did kind of lean towards the more darker, more social commentary side of science fiction writing. The, the circumstances around Kenjo is a bit of a bummer. So he, he did work on Ultra 7, like you mentioned, he was head writer of Ultraman, like you mentioned. And what happened in 1969 is the U.S. occupation of Okinawa ended and the island was returned to the Japanese government, which already like is a fraught concept when you think about the idea of the imperial Japanese government was seizing it and then the U.S. seized it and then it was given back to Japan. So the Okinawan people were just kind of all displaced. So Kinjo decided it was an opportunity to return to his home, though. And so he left Tsuburaya and he started writing stage dramas and he also directed the opening ceremonies of the 75 Expo. Um, And then unfortunately, he died when he was 37 because he was repairing his roof and slipped and fell um, in February 1976, sorry, Um, which is just like a always a tragic way to go. It's a very, very tragic way when you do something like slip off your roof and, and you die, but especially when you're that young and especially when you're a writer as gifted and as, as prolific as, as he was by that point, it's, it's kind of hard to think what he might have made going into the 80s and 90s if he had been able to continue making things. So just like a very tragic like life cut short, I think. Um, but we're lucky to have the episodes that he did. And I think that the gift from space is like, I'm going to probably say this every episode until we get to some episodes that uh, we don't like, uh, which seems impossible. But this is one of the best episodes of the show. And I think that is specifically because of that downbeat ending. Oh, for sure. I It's it's iconic in its imagery, in its ending, in the kind of gonzo way it shot at points there's a there's a fist fight uh brawl that uh happens in the midpoint uh between um oh my goodness uh jun and a bank or and a robber 
And it's shot in such a way that I was like, oh man, this reminds me of like Seijin Suzuki films almost, like how the camera's moving around. Um, I, I, this is one of, this is a amazing episode. And I think if you were to start here, um, you'd be in for a great time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that like for all of the best episodes of the show that you could e- you could even say that but maybe this one more than most because I think it is truly like a a nice self-contained capsule and it also just it is bereft of those ties to Godzilla and King Kong that the first two episodes were it is truly a if you were to just be exposed to this in stasis it would stand on its own as a very curious interesting object uh, a, a work of short form fiction right Oh yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So, gift from space. Um, do you have any more thoughts on it? Um, from my li- my light notes, I think I've covered everything I wanted to cover. Um, I that's beautiful. I, I and you covered honestly the uh, the the uh, composite shooting, which I, I think is I, I will echo is also just fantastic in this episode oh yeah absolutely it is it is one of it is one of the highlights um in a series full of effects highlights the compositing in this episode is absolutely one of the highlights um yeah we know this is i i feel like we cover the ground of this episode i i feel good about this one i i'm really looking forward to maybe a few more episodes into our own show like starting to come up with some kind of ranking of these and maybe like and and i would really like if if you're listening to this and you want this let let me know engagement on social media on every single front for every podcast ever now seems to just be dying but you know if you're a listener reach out to me reach out to preston and if you want us to do like our own little tiny subjective rankings that we post that are kind of meaningless because they're subjective through this i i think that would be a fun thing for both of us right even though it's kind of like comparing children i think (laughs) oh yeah i think Um, it would be really tough especially once we get further in but uh like i top 10 would be like pulling teeth oh yeah absolutely and top five forget about it but um we don't have to worry about that right now so that's the gift from space great episode really great companion piece to astro monster and you know hey go watch to serve man if you're not a big twilight zone head it's uh it's one of the best episodes of television ever made, and uh, you will. It is. It's thirty minutes well spent, uh, Preston. So let's 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 barrel on into. Speaking of some of the greatest television episodes ever made, let's talk ah. about my personal favorite of this Mammoth series Flower, uh, as it stands. Enormous right tendrils are popping throughout Japan, uh, and they're cr- they're cracking into buildings. They're appearing in the water. And as and they're creating earthquakes, and as the day goes on, there a huge flower emerges from the from from uh, a building, and uh, it's a primordial plant called Juran. And Juran is uh, has these tendrils that attack people. That uh, it is it is endangering the whole civilization as we know it, and the only way we can stop it is, of course, by coming together and using science to defeat it. Um, this is this is the best episode. <laughs> I'm just calling it. It. Yeah, I. 
there's something about this episode that is so wonderful because it's it embodies the vision that A.G. Subrai and Ishiro Honda brought wanted to bring so much to the Godzilla series which is that it's about unifying together to take down a common problem you know the solution is unification if we join together if we join forces if we come up with a common goal we can overcome any obstacle is the is the what what the original like dream beat of tokusatsu started out as and it this is the this is the television best version of that that idea that concept kind of just the perfect 20 minutes you'll ever spend in a world where that's the that's the main solution and some of the best practical effects you're ever going to see uh in 60s tokusatsu it's fantastic Oh yeah. Speaking, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm bringing my some some new age esotericism into this, but um, speaking as a Wiccan, um, I really care a lot about prosthetic um, and makeshift foliage in movies, especially old films. I'm very attentive and care a lot about like the love and care that goes into it because you can tell how much someone cares about the earth by the detail that they put into the flowers and plants that are fake. If somebody cares about the earth, if somebody cares about the planet, you will see that embodied in how they craft it. If they don't, it'll kind of just look like a bunch of primary hued green garbage. And because this is the center point, this is the monster, Preston, this big flower is the monster you are given an opportunity to not only see this beautiful flower, but you understand, right, that the the entire effects team is trying to take a very quintessential, aesthetically beautiful image, which is a blossoming flower, and turning it into something that is inherently horrific, that is destructive, that is destabilizing the roots of an entire populace. And through that, the effects, like, you see this photosynthesizing process of the flower in this beautiful detail it is wet it is it is moist it it folds slowly it has these little flaps that are coming apart and when it starts blossoming out you start seeing these little tiny colorful fold like multicolored folds not just like unicolored multicolored folds that look as close to a real flower that i think they could possibly get right oh for sure I, it's so photorealistic. I uh, I watched the colored uh, version uh, recently uh, that was released for the 50th anniversary, and it was it's one of the rare exceptions where I was like, wow, I kind of I might prefer seeing it in this version other than the the black and white, even though black and white's fantastic, 35 millimeter, it's wonderful looking, but um the the colorized version has this just otherworldly quality to it and it was amazing seeing that effect and seeing all its transformations all of its you know visual like splendor um in in that version and oh my gosh just a just a banger of an effect uh and there's so many different um 
techniques they use. They use stop motion. They use puppetry. They use miniature work. They use everything you can think of besides suitmation um, to make this Juran blossom and grow and and be a, uh, a, a kind of a beautiful threat in in Absolutely. this episode. And you know, speaking of the monochrome version, like I will say, like I obviously I watched this version. Um, I watched the colorized version when I saw it, but um, I have seen the I've seen clips and I have watched the whole show through in black and white before back in the day. Um, and even in that, you see the subtleties of the color. You see the subtleties of it that you know they're not just like going. The flower is this color, and it's in black and white, so we don't care. Because you that subtlety comes through, and when you're watching it in black and white, well, that's just a bunch of different cool shades of white, gray, and black that you're seeing. So no matter how you're watching it, the love for this flower comes alive. And you're right, Preston. It's, it's multiple types of animation, multiple types of effects work being used for this. It is because, Preston, human beings cannot make a flower. Like, we cannot use inorganic things to make an organic thing we cannot make and replicate a flower and the way that you need to do that is by using everything at your disposable disposable everything at your disposal to to try and replicate that slow gradual pollination and and blossoming and that's what they do here and not only that but they use a very cogent visual metaphor and and maybe i'm reading too much into it but it's it's hard to not think about the how a lot of a lot of post-war fascists um, in that era of Japan, like politically, were like really heavy aestheticians. They were very heavy into the aesthetic, the aesthetic ideal of like purity, the aesthetic ideal of what they felt embodied the national image of Japan, right? And that was often codified in flower imagery. Mm. And so what you have here, right, is this creative who's life was altered and f- fucked up by what the imperial Japanese government did to Okinawa. And you see him post-war, I, I would I would imagine, looking at the U.S.-backed implementation of fascist leaders, the coolies, um, Abe's, um, Abe's own family way back in the day, you know, um, still like you know, that is a political dynasty for people who aren't super aware, like Abe, like went back, like his family went back, right? And so you think about a creator looking Mm. at this and noticing this strand of aesthetic based nationalism destabilizing these roots taking place in the country and slowly like giving rise to these ugly cracks. Well, that's what this episode's about, isn't it? Oh, definitely. I I think that all media, all science fiction is inherently political, if not consciously, subconsciously. Um, and to, I mean, it's, it's, we as a society are destabilized by the beauty of this, this otherworldly, beautiful, but deadly thing this this unknown this thing that is a kaiju in the purest sense of being unnatural right just like the 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 uh fascism is an unnatural order to put in in the lives of everyday people so it's this thing that's unnatural it's horrible but it's presented in such beauty beauty 
that it's terror it's terrorizing everything and we as a collective have to band together to take it down um there's a scene that uh they have like a committee very similar to the committee scene in shin godzilla i'm sure that that is there's no coincidence um but uh yeah um and we have this you know moment of scientists and military men and every every kind of facet within uh government coming together to to eliminate this destabilization to eliminate the threat the thing that is that is tearing apart the very fabric of society and uh it's it's powerful stuff great stuff and and hard-hitting science fiction like i think I, I, I know I invoke the name of Twilight Zone a lot specifically because, you know, it, it's going to continue to be relevant up until the end of the series, I think, because Twilight Zone is clearly an effluent influence oh, on definitely. a lot of things in here. However, like, it, 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 it approaches, and I would argue even because of the limitations of American television at the time, it transcends a lot of the commentary that it of the thing that inspired it like this episode alone like this episode is so hard hitting socially if you understand like what kinjo went through as a creative what was happening in japan in the 20 years like between then and the end of world war ii all of that and if you think about that for one second this is like one of the most fucking political things and it goes into one of the most political things very hard hitting language mads but my point being, um, one of the biggest influences that Subaraya would leave um, are the creators of Guinea Pig, actually. And I brought this up when we recorded this prior, but um, one of the big one of the big things about Guinea Pig as a series, um, especially the second entry, Flower of Flesh and Blood, which, by the way, very similar to Mammoth Flower, um, is about positing imagery that, quote-unquote, means nothing, but also means everything. It is presenting the raw imagery for you to interpret as you will. And you fill in that imagery with bits of context. And if you get the bits of context, you understand the plausible deniability because you understand what the writers and creators are doing is so deeply transgressive that if they were being completely honest about it, nobody would let them make it, let alone watch it. And I would say Mammoth Flower is a very good example of that. Mm -hmm. It is if you were to pitch something in the 60s to a Japanese television station that's like, oh, yeah, I I think that the coolie party is doing some really fucked up shit and I really don't like the CIA backed puppet government shit going on in our own country. And this is making me deeply uncomfortable about the fascists it's enabling. Uh, well, your boss might report you. <laughs> Like, you know, they, or mm. the, you would get fired or you wouldn't be able to make it or something, right? You would be, you would not be able to sit in the same room, but you had a group of creatives who had to use the hermeneutics of censorship, which if that's not a term you're familiar with, look it up on your own time, listeners. Um, I, I've described it to you, Preston. Um, I guess I can just tell you, hermeneutics of censorship is this idea that, you, that kind of goes back to Shakespeare almost. You can't say what you're trying to say so you have to veil it right Shakespeare couldn't ever talk specifically about the political figures he was attacking so he had to write around it right and that's what this is this is the hermeneutics hermeneutics of censorship and mammoth flower is like one of the best examples of that because what it is saying is a 
is very deeply transgressive. And one thing I wanted to point out actually about the episode, specifically effects-wise, was um, the cracking buildings and the cracking roads. Um, it's a very distinct effect. It feels like a very pioneering effect. And I don't know, I would have to go back to the late 50s, early, like early, early 60s uh, toku, but when I was watching Mothra versus Godzilla, I noticed this cracking in Mothra's egg that was happening. It was this very distinct animated cracking. And if you watch Mammoth Flower, you see that that method of stop motion cracking shows up here. And it is like the cent- one of the central effects. And then, you know, fast forward a decade later, a haunted Turkish bathhouse. Okay, it was more than a decade, but like later a haunted Turkish bathhouse ended up using that cracking effect for a wall in which like a zombie burst out of. So you see this interesting etymology of an effect which might take root but I I don't know actually I might have to watch some earlier stuff and go oh it's here but in Mothra's egg then being applied to a city block a building an entire an entire bunch of buildings right and it's just a very distinct animation method drawn I guess drawn on cell using stop motion. And I just think that that's, I think it's beautiful. I think it's one of the most beautiful effects in the show, just those buildings cracking, because how else were you going to show that? Who else was making effects like that? Most of the crumbling buildings often were like, sets that were already getting tangibly broken in front of you so to make this deliberate cracking, you had to use animation. And I think it's one of the most distinct parts of the whole episode. Yeah. It's, oh, it's very cool. It's very cool. This, this episode is excellent. I, It is my favorite episode of the show. Um, it has always been my favorite episode of the show, and I, I hope that changes. Like, I hope that by the time that we get to the end of this, it's like I have been presented with another rewatch that challenges me enough to go, okay, actually, this is my favorite episode. But as it stands, Mammoth episode is not just my favorite episode of Ultra Q. It is one of my favorite, like, episodes of anything. It is up there with To Serve Man as, like, a this is a perfect episode of television. I, I cannot pick it apart from any way. Oh, agreed. I, I think it's um, it's one of the best pieces of tokusatsu science fiction, let alone science fiction. Oh, yeah. And on television ever. It's so interesting. It's so well done. Uh, has a perfect pacing, perfect plot structure, absolutely. And you, you get a, you get to see kind of yeah, Subaru. You really at do. His best. You really do. And I, I think that this is up there with the the last episode, Gift from Space. Um, this is up there in terms of like you could just show this to somebody, no context, and it would be. Uh, it would be a delight. It's a it's a great short film. If you want to treat it as a short film, it's a great short film. So oh, great. that's yeah, Do you have definitely. any other thoughts on episode four? Um, I did want to bring up uh Koji Kajita, uh the director. Uh he was a co director for a ton of Toho classics, uh Godzilla um Baragon versus Frankenstein, Garga- the War of the Gargantuas, uh including many other he has a long list of co-directing uh credits. Uh this is the only episode of Ultra Q he wrote and in fact this is the only writing credit he has. Um he also uh wrote composed some music for uh the Mothra uh fairies in um in uh, I think two different Godzilla movies, and um, 
I just wanted to I just wanted to highlight him. Uh, I think this is really cool. He will we will be running into him again. He directs several other episodes of Ultra Q, but uh, the he co-wrote this with um, uh, Koji or uh, with Tetsuo Kinjo, and I just thought he it was really cool to see someone with such a prolific background in Tokusatsu. Yeah, absolutely, it's. It really speaks to the overall quality of the show, like the the prolific creatives who had a hand in it over the years. It is, you know, to to go down the list of Kajita, like just to list some things, you know. I know you mentioned some of the things that he did, but first assistant on Godzilla, uh, first assistant on Mothra versus Godzilla, Frankenstein versus Baragon, Invasion of Astro Monster. Very funny, actually, thinking about Mothra versus Godzilla and Invasion of Astro Monster, two things that I pointed out specifically as maybe being influences on this. Well, that's where this comes in. Aside from Tsuburaya, that's where this really comes in, is Kajita is also there, and he is the director this time of this one. And I, mm-hmm. other, and, like, and I think that that's... That's really cool. You you see even more of an etymology here, and I, I think that's excellent. And he's he's done some stuff that I really want to check out. The human vapor sounds really cool. You've told me the uh, Japanese version of Varen is good. The Mysterians has always seemed really interesting to me. So I'm I really want to check out some more of his stuff. Oh, Mys- Mysterians has been on my list for a while. That's the that was a blockbuster at the time, and. Uh, in was so influential. Uh, the special effects director for the Heisei Godzilla films. That's the reason he got into special effects. That's was incredible. And also, if you think about the fact that, like, the original title for for Mysterians is the Earth Defense Force. That is another really interesting etymology there, because Earth Defense Force is like a very now long running prolific Japanese game series that's been going for two decades strong. So it's like that term was getting utilized for the first time here and i think that's great i think that's really cool um oh that's awesome yeah no definitely uh, i would really like to do some supplementary episodes sometime um for this or do a tokusatsu like a non-godzilla tokusatsu series or something because i would aside from watching these with you these with you preston i would really like to talk about some of these with you because i'm i'm on the wikipedia or the wikizilla sorry page for uh the mysterians right now and um (laughs) This looks like one hell of a movie, um, and you know it's one hell of a movie because so far, with the six episodes we've watched, uh, out, out of order now, With if you're listening to this in release order, um, Ultra Q is one hell of a show, and this is one hell of a creative team, and I continue to be excited to re-watch this show because I, I know that even though I've seen it, it's been a long time, and I'm going to be surprised all over again. Oh, definitely. I mean, I rewatched this fairly recently, and it still hits hard. Like, it's still it's exciting and wonderful. Um, it's there's very few shows like it, and even fewer that have the the effects work that it does. And uh, it's just such a special piece of Tokusatsu history. One hundred and ten percent. One hundred and ten percent. I'm. I'm really glad we're watching the show. I'm really glad we're talking about it. So Preston, how about next week, next Tuesday, you and me, we sit down and we watch episodes, now that we're back on track, episodes seven and eight. And those are going to be SOS Mount Fuji and Terror of the Sweet Honey, which the second one of those 
we're going to see the return of Kinjo, the return of of, uh, of Kajita, and uh, a lot of uh, royal jelly. Um, so, you know, look forward to that, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Preston, I think that's an episode. So I'm going to go ahead and do my sign-off. Folks, I'm Adeline Blondo. You can follow me on Twitter at VHSVivich. You can follow me on Blue Sky at mads.house and you can follow me on Substack at madshouse.substack.com that is madshouse.substack.com Preston, turn it over to you. Uh, hi, I'm Preston. You can find me on Twitter at Robotechnology and on Blue Sky at Robotechnology uh, and I usually talk about Tokusatsu or uh, Sonic the Hedgehog or a variation of the two. You know, I think a variation of the two is is always good. I think we need to finally have the uh, like like Sonic Sonic's in theaters, Preston. Godzilla, well, Godzilla minus one's coming to theaters uh, this year, and you bet your ass we're recording a podcast about that. But um, look, oh, definitely, it's time for Godzilla versus Sonic. I'm saying it. Godzilla's got to run up Sonic and booper on her little nose. Um, by the way, before before I sign off, um. Because I got to get going here in a second. I I want to say one thing. Um, if you were at the Hollywood screen <laughs> of those Godzilla movies, and when I if you heard someone shout out, "That's my girl," and you instinctively said, "That's my boy," angrily, reconsider your life choices. Preston, I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> right. All right. Godzilla's good. a girl. Fuck Bye. you. Bye. Stay fresh, ultra cuties. Godzilla's a girl. Bye. Bye. Ha, 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 ha.